Supporting the patron allows you to support the running costs of the show and afford us through far. It's not that easy, is it? Okay, so from the top. Hello and welcome back to Rails to Nowhere. As ever, I am Simon, no longer your resident railway history student. I'm no longer a student and I'm, for the time being, still your occasional train driver. And as always, I am joined by the wonderful Ella. Hi. <laughs> we go, this is, this is a, a good start to the show as ever. Uh, to leave i'm gonna have to leave this in because of yeah, that yeah you're um, gonna have to yeah yeah i'm i'm forcing you i'm taking the professionalism down at least one notch um um in today's episode we are continuing our overarching view of the relationship between british rail and technology this time we will be taking a look at the activities of british rail as it sought to fight back against the growth of road and air travel in the 1960s and 70s We'll be looking at the circumstances that led to the APT programme as well as its end and the appearance of the HST. Um, but we'll also be taking a look at some of the smaller, lesser known or lesser um, talked about innovations that BR was working on at the time. Um, however, before we move on to the history, I would like to take a moment to thank our wonderful Patreon supporters. We know we have not put out as many episodes as we promised this year. <laughs> We're working to rectify that for 2023 hopefully um supporting the patreon allows for you to support us um to make this podcast it's um covering the running costs of the podcast so running our hosting fees and our website um costs um so that's excellent means we don't have to think each year when um, those come up for renewal in return we give you some behind the scenes access um you get an early listen to the podcast episodes and some bonus episodes um all of that just starts from two pounds a month you get everything from two pounds a month now. This um, is communism. You can, you can pay more if you want to pay more, but if you pay two pound a month, you now get everything um, yeah. because doing tiers was too complex. Yeah, we've, uh, we've taken the the communist slash Gareth Dennis approach to patrons yeah. because uh, because we only have so much time and I we'd see, rather yeah. use it to make actual history than um, lots of Patreon content. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast and get extra access and early access to Rails to Nowhere, then please do head over to patreon.com forward slash Rails to Nowhere. So, it's a long time since the last episode. Last time we were discussing um, the background to modernisation in BR, we talked a little bit about some of the stuff that came before BR. Um, I'm sure we'll do an episode on some of that stuff at yeah. a later date as well. Um, and we discussed some of BR's early attempts uh, through through the 50s and into the early 60s. Uh, notably, we discussed the modernization plan, um, some of the electrification attempts and some of the early diesels. We also noted that in the 50s and 60s, BR's falling behind 
um, the continent, partially due to the fact the continent is forced into rebuilding a lot of stuff due to the combined armies of Europe marching across the continent several times, but also because the UK rejects Truman plan aid, um, which mm. means that there's just less money floating around in the UK. Notably, we also discussed how the modernization plan, while chaotic and damaged by short-termist political um, decisions, still had some important, significant um, benefits and successes. And actually, the modernization plan as proposed was probably a relatively well thought through and um, reasonable proposal um, that was then damaged by political considerations. But we did really note that these problems in implementing it um, did lead to the modernization plan leaving BR in a worse financial state at the end of the 1950s than it had started the decade. Um, and that is important as we go through the 60s and 70s because that drives political attitudes to what the capability of British Rail is in this mm. period. The simple term for this is politics. Yeah, and that's one of the big problems we come across in this decade that we're or decade and a half that we're looking at now is because of the failing of the modernization plan that leads to a lot of skepticism of British Rail's capability to manage large projects. And it leads to a lot of skepticism of the benefit of just letting BR do it stuff. Exist. Yeah. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about a time of real change in transport in Britain and globally, um, and BR's attempts to meet those changes. I've labelled this this episode the Rail Technical Centre years um, because you get some of the rail technical centers really big things that they're sort of throwing up you get their best work. all sorts of mad ideas um but we're also seeing increases in air and road travel um the 1960s notably is when a period when air travel begins to become a more accessible activity rather than it just being a luxury item um you start getting um jet aircraft and cheaper plane tickets um begin to emerge yep and at the end of this period the concord takes off for the first time yep and the preston bypass opens in 1958 um that's the first bit of motorway i can't for the life of me remember which motorway that forms a part of now this is now where all the northerners come for us and be like oh you bloody southerners this is the start of the motorway era in the UK um, and through the 1960s and 70s we see a massive expansion in the national motorway network and this drives the trend that we were seeing in the 50s and that started in the 30s of people moving towards the car it drives the trend of goods moving to road transport because you can suddenly carry heavier loads longer distances on road um, obviously not as heavy a load as you can travel on train but it becomes much more attractive very much we start to see the atomization of transport yeah which is so we're seeing as i say it's the thing that i think causes a lot of the problems we see today yeah so therefore we're seeing the stealing of domestic travel domestic longer distance travel from british rail by the airlines we're seeing the stealing of domestic shorter and medium distance travel from british rail by the road we're also seeing the stealing of the lucrative holiday traffic by both roads and aeroplanes because if you're going on holiday in the UK, you can still take all your stuff with you and you have the convenience of having your car at where you're going if you travel by car. And we also see the emergence of cheap, cheaper foreign holidays. So rather than going on the train to the British seaside, you could go to Spain 
or yeah. south of France Why go on a to plane. Blackpool? Why go to Blackpool? Why go to Blackpool when you can go to Malaga? Yep, and get equally drunk. Exactly, um, and and I think it's interesting, like with the the note of the car stealing a lot of the holiday and sh- medium distance traffic, that you see the real push of things like motor rail. Um, we're not talking necessarily yeah. about motor rail in this episode. I will do an episode on motor rail at some point because it's an interesting history. But you see mm. that sort of advertising coming in that's sort of pushing the, yeah, well, you can have your car on holiday if you travel by motor rail. Yep. I want to add a little extra on motor rail. Mm-hmm. There, there are, I, I wouldn't argue motor rail is the easiest thing to implement in a lot of places. However, there are uh, two countries where I've, I've genuinely seen good cases for it either being implemented or where it has actually been implemented quite successfully. And those are the US and Australia, because the US obviously is huge. But in Australia, yeah. you've got trips like the GAN and the Indian Pacific, which now are more touristy attractions, but they still yeah. serve as local community trains too. And they still do motor rail things. And it's a really interesting kind of quasi-touristy... They have motor rail on yeah, that. they do have motor rail. It's, it's on the front behind the locos. That's very interesting. Yeah, I'm... I've got into Australian railroading recently because, oh my Expect God, Australia it's so soon. cool. I'm not going to give away any of the things that Ella's been sending me lots of messages about, but we can expect a couple of Australian episodes, I think, soon. Yes. Um, this is also an important and interesting point for the political aspect. Britain is declining as a world power in this period. Um, the empire is dissolving. The US, and, and it seems so weird to us today, for me to say this, but the US has gone from being country that gives no interest to foreign and international affairs to being extraordinarily interventionist around the world. Because before the Second World War, the US is not an international power. It's not going around in interfering everywhere. Don't get me wrong, I'm aware that it's got its fingers in various pies in the Pacific during that period, but it's the Second World War, the rise of communism after that, that then launches the US into being a global superpower. And this means that Britain's economy is slowing down, Britain's influence around the world is slowing down, Britain's national finances are slowing down. There is a slowdown in the growth of the economy and eventual recessions and downturns. Um, This period that we're looking at here ends specifically in about 1977 because it ends with the winter of discontent and because the period of Thatcherism uh, deserves its own discussion. And for British Rail, this means there's not a lot of money going around, and it means that there's there's also an expectation that we're moving into a new era, a new modern era, and the railways maybe don't form the same critical part of that that they once were. So this is the era of beaching. We're not going to do a full review of beaching nope. here. There is going to be a beaching episode at some point, but not now. And as ever, the railways are being expected to be profitable. There's huge mistrust, as I say, after the collapse of the modernisation plan. And that defines BR's ability to invest in new and novel technologies. Mm. And I think I mentioned in the last episode, um, if the the concept of the post-war consensus, where there's sort of 10, 15 years after the first Second World War, where both Labour and the Conservatives kind of agree agree that public services are important and should be funded. That has completely um, deteriorated by the end of the 1960s um, and the middle of the 1970s. And the Conservative government, specifically through this period, put a lot of pressure on British Rail to be financially sustainable. And that leads us right up to the winter of discontent, where things really become difficult for anything with um, government finance and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the next episode um, because i think the impact of the winter of discontent fits much better in the discussion of br under thatcher because that's the direct result of that 
Yes, so hovercraft. Yes, and we touched on it last episode, but um, in their discussion of the development of the hovercraft, um, Rothwell and Gardner highlight that an important part of the development of new technology is having the ability and willingness to just uh, pursue an idea that may seem irrational or have no market use and actually just test it out and find out whether it does. Examples of this are things like armchair science in the 17th and 18th century. So you get people like Newton who have independent wealth and can therefore just sit and do experiments. Yeah, just have fun. Yeah, they can just have fun. They can try stuff out. They can do the trial and error stuff without worrying about where the money's coming from. And a, a lot of modern science tries to do that now. It tries to be like, you have money to just do trial and error until you work out what's going on. Other examples, more recent examples, things like the Manhattan Program, where the US government just threw money at yep. the project to, to, to allow it to find out what uses they could find for nuclear power. And also, very much more recently, things like um, SpaceX or to a degree Hyperloop. I think Hyperloop is 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 less so, but SpaceX certainly, Elon Musk just like throws money at mm. that project to just see if it can work yeah. and see if they can find something. And I think in the rail world as well, a good two good examples are the Shinkansen. do excuse me for my pronunciation, uh, which yep. is the magnet maglev technology the Japanese are currently pursuing, and actually looks like they're building there. And then the the other big one is the Val system. What's it called? The VAL French rubber tired metro. Is it necessarily a good idea? We don't know, quite frankly, but it's got some uses. And we're not commenting at this point on whether any of these things is good or the results they've had has been good. It's really just pointing out that these are examples of things where someone has been able to just pump money in and money is no problem. And that yeah. means they've been able to trial and error their way to either finding a thing or finding that something actually doesn't really function yeah. um, and doesn't really have a use. But that's the point is that if you're going to be innovative and coming up with random new technologies, you need to be able to just go, money is no problem. I'm just going to keep trying things until either it succeeds or it fails. Mm. And this is certainly, as we'll go through, this is something that British Rail struggles with. Rothwell and Gardner also identify that building expertise in a field can help an organisation become a better innovator because they understand the issues that are faced, but they also understand the technologies and perhaps what can be improved and where you might look for improvements. This is often the case in um, industries such as medicine, where you have a lot of expertise in what the problems are. So what illnesses we need to face, what things we want to eradicate, what solutions exist, but also where the gaps in the solutions we have are and how we might innovate into those spaces. I was going to say the classic example of that would be the BioNTech jab, um, vaccination. Hmm. That was very much a we've got some expertise and some ideas and while we know that we could do a traditional jab which they did do they also were like there's a gap here in a rapid response as such and yeah. actually quite successful and again the covid response is a good example of both of these things because money was no problem yep. for those developing jabs in the case of br as i say we find an organization that is an expert in its field it knows the issues that it faces and actually when you look at the documents you look at the primary sources it's clear that br knows what issues it's facing it's got ideas for how it might innovate into those areas 
It's not necessarily sure of what the solutions are, but it doesn't have endless money. And so a lot of its failings come from the fact that it's dependent on politicians, it's dependent on the whims of government, and that means that it doesn't succeed in everything. Now, I've got two things here that have um, lists of successes and failures, and are on my list of successes, we have things like the high-speed freight wagon, the Mark II coach, um, um, and the HST. Yep. I also have the HST on my list of things that are a failure, and I'll mm. talk a little bit about why that is um, slightly later on, but I think my view is certainly that the HST is a systemic failure, or at least a symptom of systemic failure in the way that BR is allowed to operate its network. And the really big failure is its various attempts at cab signalling, yeah. um, and we'll talk a little bit about a couple of uh, attempts at cab signalling. They're all pretty neat. They are. So the really big successes here are kind of like in small steps. They're in little things. As with the last time, like BL's really good at, at putting in small incremental improvements. And I think a lot of that's because the attention of the media and the government is focused on the big things. Yeah. So we know all about the APT. We know all about the HST because there's lots of media and government focus on that. But like little things, little signaling improvements, little technological improvements, nobody's really putting much attention on that but that means that they can kind of just pot potter away in the background doing mm. their thing well the thing as well is with things like the apt is that's a big expensive it's a big item that you can vis visibly see it stands out it looks especially the e-class very very new and exciting whereas the more boring yeah. stuff which uh, i'm sure we're going to go into in great detail well i know we are because i can see it but the, the little things like power signalling are very yeah. important to looking after and making a railway run efficiently and well and to save money yeah. too. But no one really looks at that because who's looking at... Most people aren't looking at signals. Most people aren't looking in a signal cabin and going, oh, there's Bill, he's pulling the levers again. And I don't think most people even today think, so how does my train actually like know when it's safe to go? Yes. As a paid and professional signal observer, though, modern signalling is much better and much more effective um, than what came before, and much more reliable. And in the 1960s, BR begins a really big journey towards more reliable, more effective signal control. Yep. And a big step in that is, as you say, the power signal box, as improved um, computing power and improved relays allow control to be more centralized like in the days of steam your control of your signals is limited by basically how strong is your signaler yeah it is limited by how big are the biceps on the dude in the box i think it's something like a mile is Rough, considered roughly something that. around there is roughly considered that. the limit for how far away a signal can be from the signal box because in your traditional mechanical lever frame, your signaler changes the signal by pulling a lever, which literally just pulls a big long rod or a big long piece of wire to make the signal or the point move. And so your limit on how far away your piece of equipment can be is how long can that piece of metal that the signaler is pulling be before it becomes so heavy mm. that the signaler can't actually use the leverage from their lever to pull it. Yeah. And you get some improvements in the 1930s and 40s as you begin getting some um, air-operated systems. London Underground particularly adopts air-operated um, control. Yeah, mostly from the Westinghouse company, if I recall yep. correctly. The classic yep. mini-frame shows up at about this time, or a yeah, bit before. Yeah, because you get the mini-frames because they've got air power to push the point yep. and electrical control on the signals, which means you're not tied by needing to create that physical mm. leverage so you can have a mini lever frame rather than a big lever frame. Yep. 
And it's also how you end up with cabins that are, what, I think, how big's Harrow? It's like 60 levers? Harrow's something like 60 levers, but it also technically controls two other... Yes, it technically controls two other Sub-cabins. I think it's the largest Westinghouse frame still in existence. There Mm. have been bigger ones. I think Liverpool Lime Street was the biggest Ah, in the UK until that was decommissioned. Mm. I know Liverpool Lime Street was a big one. So you get some of these on the main lines. In the 1960s, BR begins to embrace the improving computing technology and the improving relay technology to begin to have power signaling. So this means that everything's being controlled by electronics, which means you can have the signaler controlling things that are mile, and I mean miles away. Mm. You can have people controlling stuff that's 10, 20 miles away. This is really, we're moving now to an idea that you can have a few national control centers that control huge chunks of the railway. And this is the point where that begins to become yep. entertained as a possibility. Yep. And this starts off with the idea of the moving away from a lever frame to a panel of switches that you set routes and yep. up on, then you have it confirm them. And later on, this moves into the entry-exit signaling technology. We still use today most of the time, which is where you will select an entry point, so a signal on the entry, select the exit point for the train where you want it to end up, and then the signaling system will plot out a route based on all yep. that, and it will kind of set up everything on its own. And while that's a couple of years away here, we're at the point now where we're kind of in this early stages of entry exit just the signalers manually setting it up. This is the road that would ultimately lead to places like King's Cross Power Signal Box, which yep. controls everything from hitching to King's Cross, which is a huge chunk of railway from one signal box. Bearing in mind that you used to have to have two different signalers for King's Cross Station alone, you mm-hmm. can now have five people controlling the everything. southern end of the East Coast mainline at the end of this. One of the really big things, of course, here is is the relay and the mm. use of relays and their adoption, because a critical part of signaling is what's called Um, interlocking which is preventing the signaling from authorizing two trains to do things in conflicting directions or setting conflicting routes yep there's a great rail natter on this with i forget the gentleman's name but they're from swindon they're from the swindon signal um, box and they go into every type of interlocking there is and how it works mechanical interlocking is one of the most beautiful things in the world. Yes, I have seen a mechanical frame underneath as it's interlocking, and it is incredible. But really importantly is the ability to then adopt relays to do the interlocking, because that also unlocks you from the physical constraints. It also means you can put a lot more interlocking. Like, Because if you've seen a mechanical interlocking, they are huge. They're huge, they're bulky. Why are old steam era signal boxes on two floors? Well, because that bottom floor is entirely taken up by the interlocking. And you can cram a lot more interlocking for a lot larger of an area into a much smaller space once you allow, once you've got relays. Yes. And so that's very important. Again, critical in places like LU and other railways where you have underground sections yeah. because space is a, a premium. Yes. And we also see the introduction of colour light signals and AWS across larger parts of the network. Colour light signals being important and useful because they provide more information to the driver than semaphores. Yep. You no longer have a stop and go. It is now stop or be prepared to stop or be prepared to stop soonish. <laughs> yep. And they're more reliable. Mm-hmm. They have less moving parts. They have less mechanical parts. And so that becomes more reliable. You also have the beginning of the rollout of um, automatic warning system across large parts of the network provides improved safety. We'll talk a little bit later about some of the issues with AWS and some of the attempts to improve that. And these are some of the longer lasting impacts of the modernization plan. Jackson does note that there's indication that resignaling was performed in areas where 
the signalling actually wasn't life expired simply because BR wanted to show that implementation was being made and improvements were occurring. And also notes that because BR was regional, it's a little bit patchy with different regions adopting things at different speeds. We'll talk a little bit more about that later because the southern region is resistant Mm. to AWS. I think there's good reason why the southern region has scepticism about AWS as it's we also, as I say, we see the Rail Technical Centre doing its thing and being technical and amazing. One of the big things that they do is they improve freight wagons, which you wouldn't think is that important. But consider how much a freight still moved by rail, and even today still does move by rail. Having a better freight wagon is very important. Yeah, because the issue they've got is that freight is getting faster. We've yep. gone from slow, unfitted, so that's freight trains that don't have a brake all the way through. You've got the driver at the front with the locomotive and a guard at the back with a big wheel in their brake van to stop the train. But freight's getting quicker and we're now coming across the problem of hunting oscillation on freight wagons. Hunting, for those that don't know, is when a train if you get on the DLR and it does that rocking on the straight line, that's it hunting for a steady place to be. There's lots of videos demonstrating it on YouTube. Take a look on YouTube because there's some excellent ones of people pulling wagons off of tracks using haunting oscillation yep. on all and it will destroy your track too and this is the problem br's having is it's destroying the trains and it's destroying the track so they put in some research and they develop the high-speed freight wagon which notably one of the big things they do is they work out the angle so train wheels are not flat they have an angle on them yep. to try and eliminate the haunting oscillation and they do a lot of research into that they do a lot of research into suspension this is where anyone who's followed the 800s will recognize these terms here this is where the idea of a yaw damper comes from which helps to eliminate the hunting and also to allow the bogey to do a bit of hunting if necessary but without shaking the load above yep if you've ever seen on telly a video of a train bogey as it's going on at Mm. speed the bogey will be wobbling left right and all over the place but the the actual wagon will be relatively stable. This project also spawns two other controversial <laughs> yes. um, pieces of rolling stock, because this is where the Pacer and the APT both get their genesis from, because both utilise the technology from the high-speed freight wagon to allow them to operate. The Pacer is essentially just a passenger compartment put on top of a high-speed freight wagon. Yes, and we've seen how well that does in terms of like making people happy. The APT instead takes this idea that some of the research into cornering at speed that comes out of the high-speed freight wagon and goes, what if we tilt it? That's yes. that's the summary of the APT project. Let's take a high-speed freight wagon and go, let's tilt this thing. And another one of the less talked about, but also very heavily talked about things that BR brings in in this period is tops. Yes, now, my boy. Anyone who's a rail enthusiast who likes sort of talking about train classes knows that the class of a train is its tops number yeah total operations and processing system developed by the southern pacific railway in the late 1960s it ran on an ibm 360 or system slash 360 mainframe which is a big room side computer yep it was a difficult thing for the country to get a hold of, for all for British Rail to get a hold of, because of the fact it ran on an American computer and was an American system because Britain at this time had a policy of buy British and... Yep, and we discussed how that impacted BR last episode. Yep, they had to get a sign-off from the government to not buy an ICL mainframe, an International Computers Limited. They were like the British IBM. And... Yep buy this American system and have it fitted because it was more expensive and also it was American. But it was better and it was a good system. And I think it's fair to say that TOPS was revolutionary for British Rail. I would say it is possibly the 
biggest revolution for British Rail. Yeah. And the most impactful. And it's an underappreciated thing. And to give an idea of how core TOPS was to British Rail's operation, it is still in use. Still in use in its original, well, not in its exact original form. It now runs on a newer mainframe, yeah. but... It's used on newer mainframes. And it's used less by passenger operators than it once was. The passenger operators tend to use um, derivative software now, stuff yes. like Genius and Darwin. Well, they run on top um, of tops. Yeah, which are spin-off derivatives, whereas freight operations do tend to still use tops quite extensively. Yes. Which is fair, because tops specifically is designed for the sort of operations that you get when you have individual wagons and individual vehicles in consists, yep. rather than fixed brakes and fixed multiple units so that explains why we've sort of seen that to bit. yeah and i've seen a job listing once for i now worked out what it was for it's probably for looking after top but it was for yeah. someone who had the skills and the know-how with ibm assembler macros and this particular subset and if you put the pieces together it was like oh no this is certainly for tops because yeah. no nowhere else in this country is using that particular subset of macros from that particular era and it's like really interesting. So this is when BR renumbers all of its rolling stock because previously BR's numbering system was that steam locomotives had a number and then diesel and electric locomotives had a letter and a number. So a diesel locomotive would be D1000 and an electric locomotive would be E1000. Very complicated. Tops couldn't cope with that. Tops required numbers. Yep. And so this is the point where you get the system of classes that we know today coming in, yep. with multiple units getting three number classes and locomotives getting a two number class. And this piece of computing technology means almost overnight, Britain's railways go from the situation they'd been in since the Victorian era of never quite knowing where anything was to suddenly knowing where everything is yes and exactly what it's doing and exactly yeah. when it was last maintained and exactly where it needs to be next yes suddenly you've got a system that says oh yeah so you know how you've like lost some wagons for the last six months well you can find them nice and easy because yeah. that was the case for a lot of Britain's railway history, is that basically none of the railway companies knew quite where all their wagons were. And this is revolutionary, because first of all, it means you can do a much better management of fleet and resources. You can have better utilisation. One of the big things that TOPS does is it enables better, quicker interpretation of the interoperability of classes. Yeah. I think it can even do this class of loco can work with this type of wagon, but can't work with this type. You can't couple these in multiple. Yep. It was incredibly advanced. And it's also a monumental piece of organisation and logistics because we're not yep. in the era of the internet here. We're in the era yep. of telephone lines, not even dumb terminals. We had people yep. in yards pulling pieces of paper out of wooden boxes, then filling them out calling someone up at a computer center and saying i am doing this please enter it into the system can i do this yep. yes no it's it's kind of project cybersyn on a smaller level for those that know yeah. what that is and eventually that it will also allow for better maintenance rostering and better understanding of how long it's been since something's been maintained systems such as genius which i mentioned earlier specifically is designed around understanding the mileage since a wagon or a locomotive has been maintained mm. so that's one of the big things that it does is it sort of tracks how long it's been since something's been maintained and it goes well if it's been allocated to these trains it's done x number of miles and now needs to be maintained at this point mm. despite its revolutionary impact there's actually not a lot of literature on tops yeah there's like one thing online really yeah there's one thing online some first-hand accounts from within br 
suggest that it played an enormous role in improving the efficiency of BR and is one of the reasons why a lot of modernization plan diesels suddenly get withdrawn quite shortly into their lives yeah. because suddenly BR realizes that it's actually got a bit of an overallocation because now it can utilize stuff more efficiently. Mm. And it's clear from archive films made by BR that it played a significant role in BR's advertising and its portrayal of itself as a yeah. modern technology loving organization there's an excellent film i i love it because it's got all these pictures as you're saying of people pulling things out of wooden boxes and writing in them and old steam era freight wagons but it's talking about how they're embracing this new technology to mean that they can be become much more responsive because Mm. one of the big things that tops does is it tracks wagons wherever it is so when a train comes into a yard the yard have to report that back to tops so they can look at the system and they can go ah this wagon is currently in this location so in the old days it would be basically i'd go to the yard say near where i am i'd say i have this big consignment that needs to go to x place they'd be like cool put all this stuff in the wagon your wagon now goes into the black box of the railway and nobody quite knows where it is but we know it's going to the right place because it's got say york written in chalk on the side of it and at some point in the next couple of days the black box of the railway will spit it out at york but once it's in that black box there's nothing really i can do to change where it's going Mm. whereas once tops comes in we're tracking where it's gone so we know it's gone from wilsdon yard say to birmingham we know it's now in leeds and we know it's now in york but if i say when it gets it's at leeds and i suddenly go actually i don't want it to go to york i want it to go to manchester you You can can track it down and go ah it's there and you can go that wagon actually now needs to go to a new destination so it allows for a slightly more responsive railway still not quite as responsive as the roads allow freight transport to be Mm. but it's an important part of making the freight certainly freight transport and freight logistics on the railway become more responsive and i think that's an important part of Mm. br responding to the changes they're seeing coming from road transport and the threat they're seeing to their operation from the roads and it's a very efficient system too which is i think the key thing that people don't realize is that it pushes efficiency through the roof at a time when that wasn't a thing oh yeah one of the big ways it allows efficiencies to go through the roof is it allows areas to see what empty wagons are nearby Mm. so rather than it previously being me looking out into my yard and going have i got any empty wagons here I can contact tops and they can go, well, there are wagons in your area. We'll send one by. Yeah, and that allows for more efficient use of the rolling stock because actually rather than having to have lots and lots of empty wagons so that everyone's got some, you can actually much more efficiently move the empty wagons around and go, well, actually, we need more here, or we've got too many up there, or whatever. So Tops is revolutionary, and I think it's atrocious that there's not so much written about it. I'm not the right person to write a book on it. Please do not expect that. So I touched on AWS. AWS Automatic Warning System comes out of the GWR's Automatic Train Control System, which sounds a bell or a horn in a train cab, depending on the signal aspect. Yep, it's very, very basic. Annoyingly, British Rail seems to keep the use of the words automatic train control and automatic warning system um, in use parallel through the 1950s and into the 60s, which is very confusing when looking at the original records, because automatic train control now means something very different to AWS. And it's the original automatic train control is very simple. It's a battery and a contact next to the signal. It's very much similar to the French crocodile, which literally has electrical brushes on the bottom of the train that shows you like kind of how simple it is and in the 1950s and 60s br puts a lot of effort into honing this and improving this and this is where we get the yellow magnets that we're very familiar with yep on the railway 
and that is the automatic warning system. Or green if you're down south. But we'll get onto that because we don't get the green ones at this stage. Yeah. Because AWS has a fundamental issue, which is that, yes, it's better than nothing, but it's actually not a particularly great in-cab signaling system. It's it's a reminder appliance. It's really all it does because it goes, there is an issue ahead or there isn't an issue ahead. That's all it does. So if you have a red, a yellow or a double yellow aspect on the signal, so that's a stop, a caution or a preliminary caution or a speed restriction, it will give you the same indication for all of those. This is of concern to the southern region, for whom a lot of their trains run continuously on yellow or double yellow aspects for a lot of the day, because they're running so many trains. So many trains, much commuting. And their concern that actually the problem there is that if the drivers are constantly used to resetting the horn, the warning sound, it becomes meaningless Mm. and it ceases to be a useful system. And this is something we see in some RAIB reports too. I forget the ones exactly, but you can go through and a few signal pass that dangers are the driver lost all, like the the meaning was lost on them. And this is the other fundamental issue with AWS is that once the driver's acknowledged it... That's it, one shot. Yeah, so it is a legitimate concern that actually if you're in a system where drivers are just resetting warnings without thinking about what they're actually doing, that becomes a concern. So that means means that the southern region begins experimentation on depending which primary document you're reading either signal repeating or southern region automatic warning system SRAWS and this is designed to be a slightly more advanced version of AWS it uses coded track circuits yep a coded track circuit is rather than using a magnet in the forefoot you're putting electrical currents into the rails that aren't the track circuit current and that allows you to essentially use the rails as a giant antenna yeah and you modulate that and that gives different messages the victoria line and the central line both use coded track circuits for their original ato systems central line still does and so what this allows is for a full repetition of the signal aspect that's being presented ahead to the driver and actually this is very similar to the system that's still in use in ireland yes and it shows you both what the last aspect was and what your next expected aspect is yep so it's lots of information very useful very good the really big important thing is it means that once the driver's acknowledged it and they've gone past the signal if they're like hang on what was that last signal that i saw they've got it on their desk they can see it Mm. it's there because otherwise once you're past the signal you can't go back and work out what it was that you was looking at yeah and this is also a technology that was taking hold in america earlier than this as well the pennsylvanian railroad famously their weird semaphores that are the color lights they have a version of this in their cabs including on the famous t1 the locomotive that often lacked a speedometer but had in-cab signaling. Yes, and there are trial of SRAWS, so they put a trial in in the area around Dartford. Dartford, yeah, and also near New Morden. And yeah, and there's a section on the southwestern main line between Basingstoke and... I've forgotten what the other end of the... the uh, I think it was Wimbledon. Um, it was I think Wimbledon it or Rains been. Park. Yeah. And it's, the Southwest Main Line one is only on one direction on the railway. They only fit the cabs at one end of the multiple units. And the system proved that, yes, it was more capable than standard AWS and that largely would resolve the principal concerns of the southern region. Yep. But it cost quite a lot more. Yes. One of the principal benefits of AWS is it's cheap because there's a cab module that's fairly simple. And then there's the magnet in the middle of the track. And yeah, you've got to do a little bit of wiring to wire the magnet up to the signal. But otherwise, it's quite cheap. Yeah, very cheap, very simple, reasonably effective. Yeah, SRAWS requires lots of rewiring, lots of changes to the tracks. You've got to 
do various things because you've still got the track circuits, which is how the signaling system is yep. detecting that trains are present, and that's a different electrical currency. You've got to shield yeah. the two electrical systems from each other. But it's complicated and it's expensive and it takes time. The cab units are expensive because they have to do more yep. with what they're yep. receiving. Normal AWS is just an electromagnet in the track, and it's literally mm. is it on, is it off? That's all the, the cab yeah. unit has to detect. I can't remember if this is one of the first uses of the microprocessor in the cab. It might be. I think it may well be. Because we're now in the era where the microprocessor is starting to become a, an item of, that you can use. I think it may well be. So it's much more expensive. It's two, three times more expensive than normal AWS. And so BR has to reject it on cost grounds because they can't justify the expense. So talking of in-cab signaling, Ooh. this brings us on to high-speed railways. Because really, for high-speed railways, you need in-cab signaling. The Japanese found this when they built the Shinkansen. Mm-hmm. And the 1960s sees British Rail want to build high-speed railways. HS2 is not new. The 1960s, as I say, led to an erosion of British Rail's place in terms of longer-distance travel, with the spread of the motorways, the growth of air travel, cheap foreign holidays, all of these things start stealing British Rail's market. Around the world, there are newer, faster trains being built to compete yes. with the airlines, to compete with the car. Japan, in 1964, opens the first Shinkansen, from Tokyo to Osaka. Yep, the Tokaido Shinkansen. Directly to compete with airlines. Yep. The fact that I always love is one of the reasons it was built was because if you were to get the same capacity out of airliners, you would need a 747 taking off about every minute from each city. which shows you how big those trains were. In France, we've got the TGV. Le TGV. We've got the Aerotran. We've got things running at up to 200 kilometers an hour in both France and Germany. We're seeing faster increased express trains in France. The Le Capital Express Service runs an average speed of 160 kilometers an hour between Paris and Toulouse um, on upgraded lines. And that starts in 1967. So we're really seeing railways across the world looking to increase the speed, increase the comfort and increase the quality of intercity rail services to compete with the threat of the airlines. Yep. And these international trends do show, and certainly longer term, they've definitely shown that actually high-speed rail has the absolutely solid potential to reverse the trend towards the car and air for travel. And British Rail sees this and it goes, we want that. They go to Britain's government and they say, can we build a high-speed rail network? And the government looks at the cost of the Shinkansen and goes, no. No. Shinkansen, don't forget, was built on a loan from the World Bank as part of the Tokyo Olympics. And it did go insanely over budget. The head of Japan Rail had to resign. It was like three to four times. Like there's huge controversy, but yet, and this says everything about the impact of high-speed rail, it went massively over budget. The head of Japan Rail and the head of the project had to resign in disgrace. But once it opened, they went, absolutely, yes, we are building way more of those and they haven't stopped yes. since. And as we see, it is one of the prides of the Japanese nation to this day. It is one of my personal goals to get out to Japan yeah. and sample the ride because, oh my goodness, I have a friend who's been out there and I am so jealous. BR is instead told that it can't run new high-speed trains on a dedicated network. It has to work out how to do this on the existing track. Um, and so it would not be until the opening of the Channel Tunnel that a proper high-speed service starts running in the UK. For um, friends of the show, Gareth Dennis, I'm aware that there is a section of high-speed railway that opens before then, but I would argue that it's not until the Channel Tunnel opens that there's actually proper high-speed trains running. I will one-up this and say it's not until high-speed one <laughs> opens, because on the Selby Diversion, 
Yes, it can go faster. They only travel at 125 miles an hour, which is high speed for existing rail, but not for new rail. And the only yes. places that the big, long, fast boys can actually go, big, long and fast, is on High Speed 1 in Kent. And by the way, it's a good railway. Go have a go on it. So in response to being told, no, you can't build an actual high speed rail network, British Rail begins work on the advanced passenger train with the aim that it's going to run at up to 155 miles an hour. Ella has talked in previous episode about the APT's technology, so we won't go too much into depth on that here. I think there's another episode at some point on that. Um, Ella's lost in all the paperwork, though. That's the, the fun with that one. Yes. Personally, I think the APT was a bad idea. Careful. Because it was predicated around running mixed-use railway. Yes. But the technology is interesting, don't get me wrong. And as we've discussed before, actually the technology could have worked and if it had been given time to mature. As we discussed earlier, if British Rail just had the ability to spend as much time and money as it wanted playing with things, it could actually have got APT working. And actually, APT was not far from working. Mm. And actually, a lot of the things that it got criticised for are actually things that could very easily have been ironed out if it had just been given the time and money to do so. See the Class 91 and the 225 Electra sets, because actually, in many ways, those are the APT with a lot of the issues ironed out. Mm. And they're beautiful. So, like, the APT is not a failure of technology, but it's a failure of political thinking. Mm. And so its real problems start from the moment it is required to travel 155 miles an hour on existing lines interweaving with existing freight and passenger services again this is where friend of the show gareth his wonderful tweets on permanent rail yep. and from himself come in part of this problem is that it then forces br to use technology that requires lots of because the shinkansen is just a train that runs on straighter flatter smoother track at a higher speed yeah it's got a cab signaling system too but that's the sort of thing that's easy to implement on yeah. a new build railway so it's a little expensive to build a shinkansen but the problem is the apt says you want to do something new and untested on a network that's not built for it you're going to have to do some new and untested technology so this is where they're forced to have the tilting because that's the only way you're going to get faster around the corners. You're forced to have the new dynamic brakes because you can't re-signal the existing railway because the government says you can't. And you can't have in-cab signalling for it. Well, they they had a form of... Well, they attempted to have a form of in-cab. Because that's yeah. the thing, is the British Rail wants the in-cab signalling, but they're told they can't have it. Hmm. Which is why they it. then get the, like, cursed half-in-cab signalling. Yeah. <laughs> so you have, to, you have to try and shoehorn the APT into being able to function at 150 miles an hour on existing network and that is the stem of a lot of its problems from a media acceptance and a public acceptance point of view because that's when you start having to bring in all these technologies that then cause it to gain its reputational damage when these new complex things start being a problem mm. so that's not to say that apt is a complete waste of time and a waste of money because a lot of the technology does go on to provide useful data and useful information. And as I say, it goes on to basically Class 91s and the Institute 225 sets that are built for the East Coast Mainline electrification are APTs, but with the problems ironed out and without the requirement to tilt. Again, they're sadly limited by the infrastructure because they can do 140 miles an hour, 225 kilometers an hour, and they've been tested to do that. And you can actually run that on sections of the East Coast. Yeah. It is just, unfortunately, the requirement that trains traveling over 125 miles per hour, uh, 201 kilometers an hour, 
must have in-cab signalling. So theory says they could do it when the East Coast is resignalled. So having told BR that it couldn't have a segregated network and therefore to run faster, it needed to come up with this new train that had lots of new technology on it that would allow it to run faster on existing lines. The government then tells BR that no, it can't pay to put in in in-cab signalling and put in new signals. No, it can't spend forever developing this new and as yet untested technology. No, we don't trust you to manage a big project like this because of the modernisation plan. And that's then compounded with the media problems that the APT has, and that means the government basically bends BR's arm and BR brings the project to its end. It's smooth, quiet, and altogether a delightful experience for all involved. The thing is that a lot of the technology didn't exist at the start of the project and was developed through the project. And as I say, it went on to feed into the Institute 225, the Institute 125, the Pacer, and then the tech is sold on to Fiat mm-hmm. and through a couple of ownership changes then comes back round to Alstom to construct the Class 390 Pentalinos. Yep, they're almost good. So we can see that it wasn't a technological dead end. We can see that it actually had somewhere that it could go. It just needed time and research to make it function. Yes, time and money. But as a state-funded organisation, BR did not have that because it had to show value for money within a time frame mm. that the government was happy to do. So under five years. Yeah. And so the APT is a good example of why BR is badly placed as an innovator. And where the APT fails, the HST succeeds as best as is possible. Mm. So in the 1960s, British Rail had developed the Mark II coach. This had been an improvement on the Mark I coach, which it had developed for steam haulage. Uh, The later variations of the Mark II coach included air conditioning, sealed windows, better comfort, better soundproofing. Lighting. Improved lighting, improved bogies, all these things. The Mark II coach represents a very interesting point of sort of incremental improvements in coaching comfort, Mm. in passenger comfort. Seems the first to have like power doors on the inside. Yeah, I think it might be. You get the sort of very early Mark II A's, which look very much like a steam hauled mark Mm. one coach except with a slightly different shape and then you get the very later mark two f's which look very much like a shorter mark three but again with a slightly different shape yeah and somewhere in new zealand yeah and there's a really big technological gulf between the mark two a's and the mark two f's Mm. it's almost like they're not the same coach yeah and then this spawns the mark three coach which is developed both for improving comfort on the west coast mainline in loco hall sets but also to form part of the new high-speed train. This is designed to be a complete train set to provide a service suitable for the 1970s intercity traveller, bringing improvements in speed, comfort and reliability over existing trains. Significantly, the HST is designed to provide improvements to the intercity service using proven existing technology with incremental improvements, and it is therefore able to enter service despite development on the HST starting After the APT, it is able to enter service before the completion of the first prototype APT. Mm. It suffers because of that, I think, but it also is successful because of that. It's For those who aren't in the UK, it is basically two pointy diesel locomotives sandwiching a rake of otherwise unaltered, minus like the buffers removed, coaching stock. It's a very simple system. And one of its big innovations is the ability for one locomotive to drive both locomotives, that it uses a 
different kind of engine. It's actually derived from a Marine's engine. Mm. But this gives it lots of power, allows it to go up to 125 miles an hour, which is faster than existing trains. The really big innovation on the HST is the brakes. Again, like the APT, there's no resignaling authorized as part of the initial HST works. So a HST has to be able to come from 125 miles an hour to zero miles an hour in the same distance that an existing train is expected to get from 100 to zero miles an hour. And it does that, and it actually does that way better than that. Yeah. Like, the brakes are actually much better than they needed to be. Disc brakes. So that's, They're a good yeah. idea. Yeah. So the HST is doing what the railways do really well, actually, of taking existing technology and doing some incremental improvements to make it just that little bit better. And so in many ways, the HST is actually, therefore, despite its lower top speed, a much closer relative to the Shinkansen and the TGV, than the APT was, because the Shinkansen and the TGV are both taking existing rail technology and improving them a little bit to get better, faster speeds. But both of those, one of the improvements they make is having brand new track, which allows them to go way quicker. Mm. HST could do 140 miles an hour if you wanted it to. Yeah, I think it hit 143 and change. It's the fastest yeah. locomotive or diesel locomotive. And so it shows that, again, one of the limiting factors is the fact we're trying to run them on existing network. So therefore, it's very much linked actually to this sort of incremental change rather than a revolutionary change. A lot of people think of the HST as being revolutionary change. And I think a lot of that's A, down to the marketing and B, down to the styling. Mm. Like the styling of the HST is very different from what came before. And that allowed the marketing to say, look, it is something very different. Mm. And we see this too in the one place the HST has been exported to in Australia. Even reports yes. to this day on the XPT are very much this was a revolution in Australian railroading when actually it was more like what had come before than many really realised. It's a very, very cool train, but... Whilst it may not be a technological revolution, it does provide a revolution in how Britain's railways work. And also in their perception. Yeah, as I say, it looks revolutionary, it looks different, it provides a marketing opportunity, it is faster, it allows significantly reduced journey times. Its top speed is 25% faster than anything that runs on the network before, and it can sustain that and it allows it's introduced on the great western mainline to much fanfare brings down journey times and is heralded as the train that saves br and it certainly saves br's intercity travel mm. but we're running it on a mixed use network and slightly less so on the great western mainline than some other places but if we look on the west coast mainline you look on the east coast mainline there are a series of stations that lose out on local stopping service because they have to be culled to make way for faster express services. Mm. And this was something that was identified all the way back in the 1930s and the, quote, golden age of steam with the uh, competition between the East and the West on the race to the North yep. with the Coronation Scot, the beautiful golden red locomotive and the mallard and the a4 class in its subjectively much uglier bodywork fight me yep. people were already complaining back then that my station used to have four trains an hour and now it's only got two because of this fast train that has to come through yeah so while the hst represents very much the pinnacle of british rail's development of existing rail technology at this point and it is a technological success realistically it's a little bit of a technological problem because it's predicated around running a mixed use fast service on the existing railways rather than allowing the network to be segregated out into faster and slower services on separate sections mm. of railway That's and true. this causes problems and it continues to cause problems to this day 
Um, and this is obviously, as I say, one of the reasons why we're still 60 years later wanting to build a high-speed rail network and actually now getting around to doing that. Just about. <laughs> but for those of you who have stuck with the episode thus far, we come now to the part seven conclusion. So yeah, so this is quite a mixed period for British Rail, its relationship with technology. As we see, they try a couple of big projects and they don't work, but they make quite significant improvements in smaller incremental steps. Stuff like the HST and TOPS and AWS, where they're making small incremental improvements to existing stuff actually they have some quite good successes mm. but also where they try the big innovations like apt or SRAWS, then there's failings mainly because they just don't have the ability to throw unlimited amounts of time and money at it and for those who are saying oh but if it's privatized then they would private companies don't necessarily have the ability to do that i pulled up spacex as an example of a company that does that but the problem is SpaceX is unusual because it has a very rich billionaire at the top who wants to, I don't know, he wants to be able to flee to Mars or something when climate change comes. And therefore, he's willing to just keep throwing money at that project until it starts turning a profit. Yep. And then you look at things like the current British Rail Network, even with all these private companies running it either by contract with the government or of their own volition, as we see with things like their Grand Central, they don't actually just throw money at things and make things simple or easy or make the best use of the technology they have i will point to the it's so smart card as the best example of this and my argument with a Thameslink representative the other day about why can't i buy certain tickets on my phone but can at a ticket office with it even though I should just be able yeah. to buy them all. Yeah, and this is the problem, is an organisation trying to run trains and trying to be profitable and so on is just not a place to be coming up with these big, bold ideas. You need a big research and development project where you're just like, we are going to keep pouring money into that. So next time, we're going to move on to the 1980s and 90s. Look at the last decade and a half, slightly over decade and a half, because it's going to be about 17 years if we include the very last two years of the 70s of British Rail's existence through to 94. And see how British Rail uh, was addressing its technological development um, as we approach privatisation. We will see that the APT did not die entirely in the 1970s and actually did. We'll talk a bit about the class 91s and the 325s, obviously, and see how the APT and the HST influenced the development of regional and intercity services in the 1980s and I look a bit at some of the commuter services that were developed um, during the time. Mm. As ever, the bibliography for today's episode is in the description. And also, before we go, I'd like uh, to say a massive thank you to all of you, our listeners, especially our wonderful Patreon supporters. Now, at the beginning, I said if you sign up for £2 a month, you get everything from the Patreon, but you don't. There is one thing that is left on the tiers, and that mm -hmm. is if you subscribe at the £10 tier, you get a call out at the end of the um, episode. So um, I'd like to thank our £10 patron, Valkyrie Lemons. They are fantastic. If you would like to support the podcast, then please head over to Patreon. It's uh, patreon.com slash rails to nowhere. And for just £2 a month, you can help keep us um, keeping this podcast going. Well, yes. Thank you for listening. Thank you. I've been Simon. I've been Ella. She's been Ella. Thanks. And we'll see you again next time. <laughs>